This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2018 lecture for the Nuremberg Prize for Science in the Public Interest. We're delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Svante Pabo, a Swedish scientist, a biologist, and a pioneer of paleogenetics, the field that looks at the DNA of ancient organisms, including ancient peoples, uh, to understand its relationship to us and to evolution. Dr. Pabo is the director of the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. His lab is the one that is renowned for its development of techniques that allowed them to sequence ancient DNA, and specifically the one that we all uh, have heard of and are familiar with, the DNA of Neanderthals. So I'm uh, delighted to uh, welcome him to give uh, to tell us about Neanderthal DNA and its relationship to uh, evolution and to our lives today. Dr. Pabo. Well, uh, first of all, let me then thank the Nuremberg family and the Scripps Institute for this great, great honor to receive this prize. I really feel quite humbled when I see the list of awesome previous laureates of this, and I sort of hope I can live up to it a little bit at least. So what I then wanted to do here as an introduction first is to just remind you about something that you all are very aware aware about and that is that our genome, our genetic material is stored in all the cells in our body almost all cells contain the entire genome and the genome is of course made up of the famous double helical DNA molecule that when a cell divides (coughs) these two strands of the helix come apart and the information which is encoded in the form of these four bases, a sequence of them is then replicated so that two new DNA molecules emerge and of particular interest to us as geneticists is of course when this happens in the germline, when new individuals will be formed and this process is very very accurate but sometimes there are errors made So opposite to C here would normally be G, but if the wrong base is built in and that's not repaired before the cell replicates again, you will have a mutation that passed on to the next generation if this happens in the germline. And you will then see the results of these mutations in the form of differences in DNA sequences when you compare two genomes today. So if you compare two genomes of two individuals in this room, you will have a difference somewhere around every 1,200, 1,400 nucleotides. There will be a difference. And these differences sort of rain down on the genome in each generation. 
So if you then look at a chimpanzee instead, you will have about 10 times more differences in the order of one difference every 100 bases or so. And as you also know, our genome is a quite big place. It's about 3 billion base pairs. So there are around 3 million differences between two genomes that you compare. So there's quite a lot of information there to reconstruct the history of the genome. And generally we do that by depicting it in the form of these types of trees, where you see the humans here go back to shared common ancestor with the chimpanzees, further back with the gorillas and further back with the orangutans. But what then interests us here today is really the amount of variation that we found, find among humans that live today. So if you study the variation among people across the world today, what came as a big surprise when one started doing this was the finding that most variation is found in Africa. Although there are, of course, much less individuals living in Africa than the entire world outside Africa. All the people outside Africa have less variation than the people inside Africa. And not only that, much of the DNA sequences you find outside Africa have close relatives inside Africa. But there is then a component of the variation in Africa that have no close relatives outside Africa. So interpretation of this is that modern humans, the direct ancestors of people who live today, emerge first in Africa, accumulate genetic variation there, and a part of that variation goes out and colonizes the rest of the world. And with some genetic tricks, you can estimate approximately when this happened, and it's less than 100,000 years ago or so. So this is the genetic basis for the recent African origin model of modern humans. But there is, if you like, a problem with this idea. And that is that when modern humans then leave Africa and colonize the rest of the world, there were other forms of humans there that had been there for a long time. There had been human forms outside Africa since around two million years. And most famously then were Neanderthals in Western Eurasia and other forms of now extinct hominins or human forms in Eastern Eurasia. And these Neanderthals, then, here is a reconstructed Neanderthal skeleton on the left compared to a modern human skeleton with these robust forms of humans that appear in the fossil record in Europe and Western Asia around 400,000 years ago or so and exist in that part of the world until they become extinct in the order of 40,000 years ago generally in connection with that modern humans appear in an area. And in paleontology, one had discussed over decades what then happens when modern humans come out of Africa, come to Europe and Asia, if one mixed with these resident Neanderthals and other forms, or if there was a total replacement or some contribution then from Neanderthals to present-day Europeans and from these other forms to present-day Asians. But to then address that in a direct way, you would need to study the genomes, the DNA from these extinct forms. And there are technical problems with that, of course. 
Some of them are sort of illustrated here, that if you compare the DNA you would extract from a present-day person, you get long, nice fragments, 10,000, 20,000 bases long. The ancient DNA you would find in a bone of a Neanderthal are in short little fragments, 30, 40 bases long. It's chemically modified, and it's very little of it there, often 100,000, a million-fold less per amount of, say, bone tissue than you would have in fresh tissue. And these tiny amounts of degraded DNA is then present in a large excess of microbial DNA from microbes who have colonized the bone when it was in the ground. And the result of this is then a tiny amount of present-day human DNA that might exist on a speck of dust in the air in the laboratory that would not play any role at all when you study this modern DNA in large amounts, might totally overwhelm your experiments here. So you might study your own DNA rather than a DNA from the Neanderthal. And so it had worked actually over 30 years now on sort of overcoming some of these problems. Some of it involves like a mania for cleanliness where you sort of dress up in funny clothing, use UV light to destroy DNA, filter the air, to uh, uh, not have dust present and so on. And with these techniques then, in the early 90s, we were very lucky after lots of negotiations to get access to the first Neanderthal. And this was not just any Neanderthal, it was a Neanderthal that was found in 1856 in Neanderthal in Germany that gave its name to this group of and it was the first time one realized that there had been other forms of humans around here before modern humans came. So at that time, one focused on a particular little part of the genome that exists in many copies per cell. It's this mitochondrial genome that's inherited from mothers to offspring, a particular variable part of that genome, cumbersomely at the time, amplified and cloned many, many fragments, believed the substitutions that continuously there. And if you then estimate the relationship of the Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA with that of present-day humans, you find that they go back to common ancestor for this part of the genome, then that's about half a million years back, whereas all humans today, no matter where you live, for the mitochondrial DNA go back to an ancestor somewhere 100, 200,000 years ago. So in a sort of model where one would say total replacement when modern humans come, zero percent contribution from Neanderthals to present-day Europeans, to the other extreme would be total continuity. Neanderthals are the ancestors of present-day Europeans. For the mitochondrial DNA, it's very clear. There's no one running around with the mitochondrial DNA of a Neanderthal today, so it's total replacement. But it was also clear already back in 97 that this could just, might just be a part of the story, that this is a very tiny part of our genome. The big picture is in the nuclear genome, where we have three billion base pairs from our mothers, three billion base pairs from our fathers, and the complete genetic picture. But I think I'm quoted in the press somewhere in 99 saying we will never have a nuclear genome from a Neanderthal. It's too degraded, it's too modified, it can't be done. 
And I guess it just goes to say that you should never make predictions in science, particularly not negative predictions, <laughs> because you're generally overtaken. And what overtakes you is generally technology. So what I hadn't anticipated that came around at the beginning of the millennium were technologies to sequence millions and billions of DNA fragments rapidly and inexpensively. So you could sort of just look at all the DNA you could extract from such a fossil, sequence all the DNA in it, make your own little database of what's in this bone, and start comparing it to the human genome that then became available and other genomes. And we were very lucky to be able to apply for and get funding for a five-year project to then improve the techniques with which extract short little fragments from the bones and convert them efficiently to form you could feed into such sequencing machines. So we got a lot better in that process. And we then looked a lot around Europe for, for places to find good bones and ended up at this site in southern Europe, in Croatia, Vindia Cave, where we focused on three different bones from three different Neanderthals and went and sequenced around a billion DNA molecules from those bones. Most of these molecules then come from bacterial DNA and fungal DNA in the bone, but we could then map some of these molecules to the human genome, taking these modifications that exist there into account. So in 2010, we had sequenced so much to each position in the genome had statistically been seen once. But that means that some places are seen once, some are seen two times, and many others are not seen at all. So we had then a little over half the Neanderthal genome that we'd seen once or more. But you could begin to ask questions. And the, one of the first questions we were really interested in was this question. What have happened when modern humans met Neanderthals? Did one mix with each other or not? So what you would expect if modern humans mixed with Neanderthals in Europe would of course be that Europeans today should share more genetic variants with Neanderthals than people in Africa where Neanderthals have never existed. So there's no reason to think African ancestors would ever have seen Neanderthals or mixed with them. So we could ask that then in some very simple ways. We have the Neanderthal genome here from Croatia. We could compare a European individual. At the time we thought uh, we sequenced one individual from Europe to high quality. Of course, a French person is what we thought was the most typical European. So we did that. <laughs> and an African individual. And then just look for... Any places these two individuals differ from each other, the European person, the African individual, and see how often does the Neanderthal match the European and the African. If there had been no contribution in Europe, it should be 50-50. And to my surprise, we found that it was statistically significantly more matching to the European person than the African person, suggesting there could have been a contribution there from Neanderthals. Even more surprising was that when we did this with a Chinese person and an African person, we again saw more matching. Although most people would say there had never been Neanderthals in China. Some people would debate that, but when we then went to Papua New Guinea, where for sure there had never been Neanderthals, we again see this. 
So no matter where we looked, outside sub-Saharan Africa, so in North Africa and the whole rest of the world, we find this additional mattering to the Neanderthal. And that then led to this suggestion, which had largely sort of hold up for the test of time, suggesting that when modern humans spread in Africa and then started spreading out of Africa, they presumably came through the Middle East, and we know there were Neanderthals in the Middle East, and if these early modern humans outside Africa then mixed with Neanderthals, they could then carry this Neanderthal component with them, so to say, to the rest of the world, also to parts of the world where there had never been Neanderthals, to the extent that no matter where you come from, if your ancestors outside Africa, 1% to 2% of the genome come from Neanderthals. So it was very sort of satisfying. There were lots of follow-up of that in the scientific literature quite rapidly after uh, we published this. Uh, but we also found out, indeed, that lots of the general public turned out to be very interested in this. And I can never stop myself from pointing out that we started getting lots of emails and letters from people who self-identified as Neanderthals. <laughs> and after a while, I started seeing a pattern in this communication. Sort of mainly men who say they are Neanderthals, <laughs> and very few women who claim they are Neanderthals and want to contribute to us. So, you know, I, I presented this to my group as my research. I count emails. And they're, of course, hypercritical of anything I do. So they say this is just ascertainment. Men are more interested in molecular genetics. They will write to you. Fewer women write. But I went back to all these letters and found that that's not at all true because there are plenty of women who write to us and say they're married to Neanderthals. <laughs> but so do we do other things too, of course, uh, than just count emails. So... Um, one thing that we have done since that time is arrive at very high-quality Neanderthal genomes. And that's really thanks to collaborations with uh, colleagues in Russia, archaeologists in Russia, particularly Anatoly Derevyanko in Novosibirsk, who excavated many sites in Siberia, but particularly this site in southern Siberia on the border to Mongolia and Kazakhstan, the Nisva Cave. It's a beautiful place. It is like the Alps, but with no people. Um, and in 2010, they found this little toe bone there that turned out to come from a Neanderthal. And by that time, we had worked out more efficient ways to make libraries of molecules that you can sequence in those sequencing machines. And these methods actually build on uh, this double-stranded molecule and instead of using the double-stranded molecule, you start out by separating the two strands from each other, and each strand is then made into a double-stranded molecule that is sequenced. Each double-stranded molecule has two chances to be sequenced, one from each strand. That turns out to be one of the tricks that's really important to get from them. If you look at one part of the chromosome, what we had were then this one-fold coverage with a miss still, almost half of the genome, to something where we really cover every position on average 50 times over. So we have really, of the part of the genome to which we can map these short fragments, a quality of the genome that is just as good as any genome you would sequence today. So with that, we can then very accurately see which fragments in present-day people come from Neanderthals. 
So in Europeans then, on average, 23 million base pairs in the genome come from the Neanderthal. And that's distributed in fragments of almost 50,000 base pairs sort of strewn around the genome. So if you just look at one chromosome here, each line would be one individual today, and in red are the fragments that come from Neanderthals. So you will see that people often tend to carry different fragments that come from the Neanderthal when you compare two people, but on average per person it adds up to 1% to 2%. So you can then say, if I jump from person to person across a few hundred or thousand individuals, how much of the Neanderthal genome can I puzzle together from people who live today? That's illustrated in blue here. And it adds up to something like 40, maybe 50% of the Neanderthal genome is still walking around on two legs today, so to say. So the Neanderthals are not totally extinct. It lives on to some extent in people today. But this place and the Nisova cave is an amazing place because they find them, well, before that, I should say, we have this high-quality genome from here. What has then happened is that we have also, from this other cave site here, been able to do high-quality genome of a Neanderthal from Europe, from this bone here. So we can now ask, for people who live in Europe today, their Neanderthal component in the genome, are they more closely related to the Siberian Neanderthal or the Croatian Neanderthal from Europe? And not so surprisingly, they are more related to European Neanderthal. But we can then ask for people who today live much closer to where this Neanderthal live. Are they more closely related to this Neanderthal or the European Neanderthal? And a bit surprisingly then, they are all more closely related to the European Neanderthal. So they're fitting with this model that this major part of this contribution at least comes early on in Western Eurasia into the ancestors of modern Europeans. But as I said, this Denisova cave is an amazing place. They find other things there. And I don't know if there are archaeologists in the audience, perhaps not so many, so I can speak freely. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think Western archaeologists have a sort of tendency to talk down on Russian archaeology and say, oh, they excavate like we did 50 years ago, they just look for the big finds, it's not scientific archaeology. But I think you must agree with me that realizing that this could be a human bone, a fragment of the last phalanx of a pinky of a child, is quite skilled. So we got this bone to Leipzig and with these new techniques we were able to sequence a high quality genome from this tiny little bone. And we were very surprised to find that it was not a Neanderthal, not a modern human, but something else that went far back here to common ancestors shared with Neanderthals. So in years, it's always hard to estimate this, but assuming certain mutation rates and other things, if we say the deepest divergence between two African populations today in the order of 100,000, then the divergence between this individual's population and Neanderthals is like four times deeper. So it's a quite distant relative of Neanderthals. We discussed a lot with our Russian colleagues about what to call this, and they ended up calling it Denisovans. So they are named after Denisova Cave, where they were first found, just as Neanderthals are named 
after Neanderthal, where they were first found. And still today, then, uh, eight years later, they are only known from this little finger bone and three teeth that has been found in this cave. But we think that they have been quite widespread in the past, actually. Because if we look in present-day people, we find no genetic contribution from these Denisovans in Europe and Western Asia, but we find it in all of Eastern Eurasia, a small component, less than 1%. But in Oceania, so Papua New Guinea, Aboriginal Australians, and so on, it's up to 5% of the genome, or 6% that come from these Denisovans. And not only that, there's a group at Princeton, Josh Aikis group, have realized that there is interesting structure, was interesting structure in the Denisovan population. So when then look at genomes from Papua New Guinea here and plot fragments in the genome on this side here, their identity to Neanderthals, they find this Neanderthal component that's quite close to the Neanderthal genome, that would be at one. And they find this other component similar to the Denisovan genome, but quite a bit further from the Denisovan genome than the Neanderthals is to the Neanderthal genome. So this is in Papua New Guinea. But when they look in genomes in Japan, they then find this Neanderthal component. They find this component that exists also here, quite far from the Denisovan genome. And then they find an additional component that's very close to the genome of Denisovans we have sequenced. So this then suggests that there were two distinct populations of Denisovans that both contributed to present-day people in Japan. So it sort of shows that it was not just one population of Denisovans, there were more of them. So you then find, in, you find this not in India and Pakistan or Papua New Guinea, as we said, but if you look in Chinese individuals or in Japanese individuals, you find this other component. So if we should summarize then what we think we know about the origins of Neanderthals and Denisovans and their interactions with modern humans from genomes, the Neanderthals and Denisovans have some common ancestry in Africa more than half a million years ago. They come out of Africa and evolve then into what we call Neanderthals in Western Eurasia and into what we call Denisovans in Eastern Eurasia. We don't know where the border between these groups have been, at which times, but at some time there have been Neanderthals here in Denisova cave, at some other times Denisovans. Then modern humans appear in Africa, spread to the Middle East quite early on, but then start spreading seriously around the rest of Eurasia 60, 70,000 years ago. And they mix probably early on with Neanderthals, continue to spread. There's good evidence that we'll talk about in a minute that there were other mixtures here. They mixed with Denisovans quite early on and mix then with another Denisovan population here, most likely additional mixture in ancestors people in Oceania. And then these groups disappear, but then lives on a bit today then in this components in the genomes of people today. So what about Africa then? Of course, modern humans appear in Africa too, spread there. If they're mixed with these earlier forms outside Africa, I think there is sort of good reason to think one mixed with other forms also in Africa. 
There are some indications of that in the genomes of present-day Africans, but we have no archaic genomes, no <coughs> genomes of extinct forms of humans from Africa yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if one finds that this has gone on also in, in Asia, in Africa. So in this scheme of the thing now, with the nuclear genomes, we clearly rejected this total replacement idea. There is this contribution from these other forms, but the vast majority of the variation in present-day people still come out of Africa. This is sort of maximally 7-8% in Papua New Guinea, say, from other forms. And we begin to learn more about this mixture now, directly more. And the first hint of that came from this site in Romania, where cavers found uh, just about 10 years ago this human mandible that is carbon dated to around 40,000 years ago. So it's one of the earliest modern humans in Europe that lived at a time when there were still Neanderthals around. So we were, of course, very interested to say of this person already mixed with Neanderthals. We just look at one chromosome here, and in other present-day people, we indicate in color fragments on this chromosome that come from Neanderthals. And then we ask, for this person in Romania have it mixed with Neanderthals? And indeed it has. And it has a lot more Neanderthal DNA than anyone that's around today. And in fact, where it's black here, we just have no information because this is a very fragmentary genome. So it really seems that more than half of this chromosome is solidly of Neanderthal ancestry, <coughs> suggesting, of course, that there's a Neanderthal ancestry, ancestor here, quite close in the family history. And there are seven such large chromosomal segments that are Neanderthal, so you can then show that this means that this individual here, of course, had 50% of its ancestors from mother and father, 25 from grandparents, and so on. And the amount of DNA we find here from Neanderthals suggests that six generations back, five generations back, or four generations back, one of those cases, it had a Neanderthal ancestry. So we sort of almost caught someone in the act of mixing with Neanderthals here, so to say. So all these different mixtures you can infer from the genomes, we happen to stumble around one case here, Neanderthals contributing to modern humans. The other such case we found just last year, and this is this tiny little bone, this size of a bone from the Nisava cave. It's so small, so you can't tell if it's from a human or an animal. But together with uh, a group in Oxford, Tom Hyans' group, used mass spectrometry to screen over 2,000 such bone fragments from the cave and found one bone that turned out to be from some human form. We sequenced the mitochondrial DNA from this that's maternally inherited and was Neanderthals. We said we found the Neanderthal bone. But then we continued to look at the nuclear genome. And these are each chromosome in the genome, chromosome 1 and 2 and 3 and so on, and plotted in blue are variants typical of Neanderthals and in red typical of Denisovans. And you will see that every chromosome is colored both blue and red. So this really suggests that this person has one chromosome that's Neanderthal and one chromosome that is Denisovan. 
And if we then look at the amount of variation in this individual, this is us looking at present-day Africans and non-Africans and less variation, Neanderthals and Denisovans have even less variation than non-Africans today, but this individual looks like Africans in this respect. This really suggests that this is a first-generation mixture where the mother is Neanderthal and the father is Denisovans that come from these two populations. And we know the mother is Neanderthal because of the mitochondrial DNA, which is Neanderthal. But this is not totally the whole story, because there are some regions, five regions here, marked in green, that's hard to see. But there's some regions longer than a million base pairs that look like this, that look solidly Neanderthal. So if you compare this to a normal Neanderthal, this segment in this individual looks like it was just Neanderthal. So that suggests that the father the Denisovan father had some Neanderthal ancestor back in its family history. So he had some Neanderthals back here in the order of 10,000 years before or something like that. So here we really caught someone in the act, if you like. And of these different mixtures, then we stumbled across this one here, a first-generation mixture between a Neanderthal and a Denisovan. So what this really tells us is that these different human forms are really mixed with each other quite frequently, since we find this so often, at least when one has met. And we can, of course, now look a little more on the population history. Here is this individual. The father is Denisovan, and it's quite, he is quite closely related to the Denisovan genome in Denisova cave, not so surprising. The mother is more interesting she is sort of closer related to Neanderthals in Europe that lived much later than to the Neanderthal in the same cave that is just a few meters away but lived a few 10,000 years earlier in the Nisiva cave. So this really tells us that in the future there will be interesting population history in Neanderthals to be discovered. There seems to be migration of Neanderthals from the west to the East at least twice replacing early Neanderthal forms. And I sort of want to stress again the surprising thing to me that then from Denisova cave we have only six individuals for which we have genetic data and one of them turns out to be this first generation hybrid if you like between Neanderthals and Denisovans. If we look at modern humans that are old enough to live when Neanderthals were around, there are only three individuals today where we have genetic information. One is in Russia here, one is this individual I mentioned in Romania, and one is an individual outside Beijing. And one of these individuals then turned out to have this close Neanderthal relative. So it seems to be too lucky to run into this so often. So the picture that I think is beginning to emerge is that the Neanderthals may not have become extinct in a sort of sense we often think about it. It may be that a part of the story at least is that Neanderthals simply mixed with modern humans when they came. Modern humans were probably more numerous and were just absorbed into modern human populations. Now, it might have been different stories at different places and different times, but that may be part of the story, how they disappeared. If you just imagine there were 50 times more modern humans than Neanderthals, that would end up being 2% in our genomes, right? 
Now, it was probably not 50 times more modern humans. There must be more to the story than that, but that could be part of the story. So, in the last little part of this, then, I wanted to say, who cares, so to say? What does this mean to us today, if anything, that we have this contribution from Neanderthals, for example? And we begin to learn more about that almost every month. So, you can sort of go over the entire genome here in Europeans and plot in red the frequency of contribution from Neanderthals. And you will see that in some parts of the genome, 60, 70, 80% of people in Europe have something from Neanderthals. In Asia, some of these correlate, some are Asian-specific, some European-specific. And one begins to learn what is hiding in these regions. I just show you two examples. One is an example of something that's quite frequent in Asia and in Native Americans, up to 25% of Asians carry a variant from Neanderthals. It's quite clearly closely related, the red ones here, to Neanderthals. And it encodes, it has a gene that encodes a lipid transporter, where the Neanderthal variant differ at four different amino acid positions from um, uh, the modern human variant. And this Neanderthal variant correlates today with a tendency to get type 2 diabetes, the type of diabetes you get in old age. So it may be surprising that something that causes a problem today has risen, come from Neanderthals and risen to high frequency. But I think in this case you can perhaps speculate that those genetic variants that tend to give us diabetes today when we eat too much almost our whole life may actually be variants that are advantageous in periods of starvation. So it may be that this is some Neanderthal adaptation to starvation that come over, rise to high frequency, and today in our current environment gives us problems. I just point out one more example that just was published last month. It's a variant that comes from Neanderthals and has different distributions. It's primarily in North Africa and Western Europe. It encodes a progesterone receptor, a hormone that's important in pregnancy. And here the Neanderthal variant is associated with preterm births, premature babies. It's very hard to think out why that would be advantageous and rise to high frequency. But I think it probably just goes to say that we know very, very little of the function of genetic variants. Someone, some variants are associated with medical problems, that's why we find them. But they may have other advantageous effects or had them in the past that we don't know about yet. So what about Denisovans? Have they contributed to present-day people? Yes, they have. And there are several examples of that. The most famous one is in Tibet, where people are ad adapted to living at high altitudes, uh, particularly then adapting to high altitudes without accumulating a lot of red blood cells in your blood that most other people do when they live at high altitude with results in problems with blood clots and things like that. So it was already known that this variant is very common, 80% frequency or so in Tibet of this gene. And Rasmus Nielsen's group at Berkeley showed that this comes over from the Nisivans into the ancestors of Tibetans. So it's quite fascinating that probably without this contribution from the Nisivans, 
we wouldn't have so large populations of people living at the high plateau in, in Tibet. Something seems to have been so important that they've come over both the Neanderthals and the Nisimans, so twice. So one example is this cluster of toll-like receptors. These are receptors on the cell surface that are important for innate immunity against viruses and bacteria that can act immediately when we get infected. It doesn't need to adapt to the pathogens. Shows this typical frequency, uh, sort of occurrence outside Africa, very little in Africa, and associated with gene flow from Europe back into Africa. This is, has come over from Neanderthals and from the Nisivans, the present-day people. If you look at people who have two copies of the Neanderthal variant, they express more of these receptors on the cell surface than those that are heterozygote, one Neanderthal copy, one modern copy, or those that have two modern copies. And if you look at how these Neanderthal and the Nisivan variants, what they are associated with in the population today... They are associated to increased resistance to Helicobacter pylori infections, the type of bacteria that gives you ulcers. So if you don't have ulcers, you might thank the Neanderthals for that. But this also illustrates that these genetic variants have many effects. So these same variants are associated with increased risk of allergies of different sorts. So if you have allergies, you might blame the Neanderthals. So uh, this is an overview of the things that seem to have been positively selected from Neanderthals in present-day people fr- from Josh Ake's lab in Princeton. Uh, and many of these have to do with immunity to infectious diseases. Many seem to have to do with skin pigmentation for some reason. But most variants from Neanderthals that we know of have to do with medical problems. So hypercoagulation, blood clots, kidney diseases, many skin diseases, even things like depression and immune problems. Some of this is surely ascertainment bias, that there is sort of medical studies where you find variants associated with disease, and in the five whoops, it comes from Neanderthals. But there's probably not only that. It's probably that many Neanderthal variants also actually functions badly in the modern background. Because if we look in different parts of genes, this is the average, about 2%, comes from Neanderthals across the genome. But if we look in promoters, so the part of the gene that determines how much of the gene is turned on, we see significantly less contribution from Neanderthals than we would expect, suggesting that many parts of the genome that have to do with regulation that come over are actually selected against and removed from the population. But finally then, what we are particularly interested in, in in my group, is the opposite of this, if you like, what was not contributed from Neanderthals to present-day people. Because what you can now do is to walk over the genome, here, first chromosome, second chromosome, plot as we did before in red, contributions from Neanderthals, how frequent they are in Europe, in red, in Asia, in green. And then we can say, are the parts of the genome where statistically we would expect to see Neanderthal contribution, but we see none. And indeed, you can find such regions. And in particular, you can study non-Africans, and not only non-Africans, but uh, people in Oceania. Because they have then two sort of contributions from Neanderthals first, the 2%, 
and a later contribution from the Nisivans, 4 to 6 percent. And then you can ask other regions in Papua New Guinea here that are like this, that have neither Denisovan nor Neanderthal contributions, that have twice resisted, so to say, to take up these things. So regions such as this, and is there something interesting that hides there? And why are we interested in this? That's because we could imagine that in such regions are hiding sort of the genetic background for functions that are unique to modern humans. So things that changed in the last half million years since we separated from Neanderthals and spread to everyone around the world. And why are we interested in these things? Well, I think that modern humans are very special when you compare them to Neanderthals, to the Nisivans, to other forms of now extinct hominins. If you look at Neanderthal stone technology at the beginning of their history, 400,000 years ago, at the end of their history, 40,000 years ago, to me they look the same. An expert can sort of explain to me there are some differences there and then I can see it. But modern humans then have existed around the world for 100,000 years. And I needn't be an expert to say that modern human technology 100,000 years ago and today is very different. So sort of what comes with modern humans is technology that after a while starts changing very rapidly and also become regionalized. So you can see that the technology in Western Europe is different from Central Asia, whereas Neanderthal technology was homogeneous because it changed so slowly. Art is another controversial thing. There are now some evidence for art that Neanderthals must have made. So this is probably the most sophisticated Neanderthal art uh, that we know of. It's a cave site in Spain. If I'm a little facetious, I would say it looks pretty much like modern art to me because I can't really see what it depicts. Whereas sort of figurative art that you really see immediately what it depicts comes with modern humans. And of course, modern humans is the first group that becomes not just, say, 100,000 individuals at any one time, but millions of people spread over open water systematically and colonize the whole planet and end up influencing, in the end, much of the biosphere, as you study here. So an idea, then, is that when we now have the genome of Neanderthals and Denisovans and genomes from all around the world, we can sort of focus on these things here that changed in the human genome, became present in everybody no matter where we live, and make a catalogue of those things. And this catalogue is not very big, actually. So it's in the order of 30,000 changes in the genome or so. I should now say for the two-thirds of the genome where we can map these things, that's really single copy. There are, of course, differences that we don't know very well in repetitive part of the genome. But so our great interest is sort of look at these things and say which ones of these might be important. And I just want to, in the end, give you a flavor for that by focusing on the most trivial type of changes in your like The changes that change amino acids in proteins, in the molecules that really do the functions in our body. So these 96 changes affect only 87 proteins. And still, then the question is which ones might be important. And we have this bias, of course. We think that you, modern human cognition or sociality is special. So things that have to do with brain development or brain function might be particularly important. 
And we look, you know, to capital of this, but one that has sort of has fascinated us are three of these proteins that turn out to all be have to do with the machinery that pulls the chromosomes apart in cell division. This is a spindle and kinetic course where the chromosomes in the middle here are pulled apart to the two daughter cells. Three of these proteins have a function here. I was very surprised when I saw this. I thought cell division would be very conserved and not have changed in modern humans relative to Neanderthals. But you sort of one could speculate and say during brain development we know that how cells divide the cleavage planes here is very important for how many neurons you make and uh, in the brain in the end this was only speculation until then uh, it became possible to make stem cells from somatic cells that you could then differentiate in the laboratory into different types of neurons and into these cerebral organoids, which are little sort of bubbles, if you like, of tissues of developing brain that are just a few millimeters big that you can culture in the laboratory. And this is then a, a model system for how brain develops. So what we and others do is do this for from chimpanzee stem cells and human stem cells compare the chimpanzee and humans and they look very, very similar. But there are some differences that you can find. So in particular, if you then look at this epithelium where these stem cells divide, these cells here in the top or in the bottom in this picture divide and make more stem cells that will eventually become neurons. And if you compare how this happens for humans and chimpanzees, this is staining of the cell nuclei with the chromosomes. And you will see in this picture how these chromosomes form this sort of plate here from the two daughter cells that are then pulled apart. Here they are pulled apart. And this happened in the chimp here. And here it happened in the human. And you will notice at the time when they line up here, metaphase is longer in humans than in chimpanzees or the mouse. So here is a difference that seems to be specific actually during brain development. And this of course made us think about these three genes again that are involved in forming and pulling the chromosomes apart here. So these three genes. So what we are now involved in doing is sort of putting these changes into the mouse, making the mouse have the modern human versions, and in stem cells, putting in ancestral versions in the human genome in the stem cells, and then look at this cell division, how it happens during brain development in the mouse and in these organoids to look for that. So I think that is sort of a flavor of what will be the most exciting thing in the next five or ten years, to my mind, is to try to find the sort of biological differences that really set modern humans apart from Neanderthals. So I hope I sort of convinced you then that if you are interested in human evolution here, it's very valuable to have the genome or our closest evolutionary relative because you can time things. You can see what happened back here in the genome and what happened more recently, the things that we are most interested in. Now when we start getting more genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans, in the future we'll also be able to focus on functional changes in the Neanderthal genome here. 
And the way forward to test this, I think, would be to sort of model this in stem cells and also model it in animal models as humanized mice, for example. To end, I should say, many, many people have been involved in this, more people than I will be able to mention, many paleontologists to contribute valuable specimens, many people that help us analyze the genomes uh, over the years, many people involved in the functional work in the lab. I'll just show you the pictures of the group leaders currently in the department, mentioned particularly Matthias Meyer, who developed the techniques to make these high-quality, high-complexity libraries. Without his work, we would not have high-quality genomes of Neanderthals. And Janet Kels, who coordinates all the bioinformatics and much of the population genetic analysis. And some of the people we collaborate with on the functional work, particularly Wieland Huttner's group on mouse development of the brain. And with that, I then thank you for your attention. Svante, you, you took the appropriate conservative view that uh, the, it could have just been a simple swamping out. But then you, you also pointed out that there's not a single uh, Neanderthal female lineage mitochondria in any human. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these de- deserts. And mm-hmm. then you have the fact that most of the selection is for, which evidently could have occurred, mm-hmm. is to protect from infection and mm-hmm adjust to the environment, heights, and so on. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that whole picture, doesn't it suggest more that uh, it was not just a swamping out, but uh, a replacement by some form of success? Yes, it's almost hard to say what, what we mean with success, but yes, I mean, there are parts of the genome that were positively <coughs> selected, these deserts. Surely, yes, I would say that. Um, female lineages may well have come over. I mean, you could easily, by as chance, lose a mitochondria, actually. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think there is sort of evidence for that. Some of these Neanderthal variants don't work well in a modern human background. That is for sure true. And that's also probably why we only have about 50% of the Neanderthal genome around today and, and not the whole thing. The, one of the comments is that you mentioned, for example, grizzly bears could mate with polar bears and mm-hmm. so on. What has happened with humans is sort of as if the grizzly bears of North America came out mm-hmm. and bred with all the other bears across the planet, mm-hmm. incorporated a little bit of their DNA, and all that's left are grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. That's what seems to have happened to humans. And I can find no example in the history of the planet where that mm-hmm. has happened. So I think we, you mm-hmm. use the word, dangerously use the word that humans are special. Mm-hmm. Maybe yes. we are. No, I, I do think, I mean, that's why we're so interested in these 30,000 changes, that modern humans are very special. There had been other hominins around for two million years, and no one has spread around the planet like this or developed technology like this. We are certainly a very, very special primate. Hi. Thank you. Um, so I was curious. You kind of hinted at this, but I'm not sure if it's yet been resolved. Do you know which hominid lineages are most represented in um, the ancient Americas? Mm-hmm. Well, so... Native Americans are really a sample of 
East Asians. So they do have the Neanderthal component like everyone else has, and they have this Denisovan component in addition. So, yes. Great. Thank they're you. Sort of, from this perspective, they just look like Asians, if you like. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.